Hey everybody and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty but the books are not. I'm Trevor, this is Mark. Uh, how are you feeling today, Mark? I feel like a whole roll of scratch tickets, because you know there's like a winner in there somewhere buried. Whoa, that's... <laughs> okay, That's that was pretty good. I th There's potential there. Yeah. How are you feeling? Uh, I feel um, I feel like a freshly laundered sock. So you know when you put a sock on after like a long, arduous week of work, and everything's clean, everything's crispy, everything's clear. It's all over. You got fresh socks on. Yeah, it's nice for winter. I think yeah. we got both got some <laughs> some good potential. <laughs> Except you're get... forgetting that I don't experience winter here in Southern oh, yeah. California. <laughs> Actually, that's been a really interesting thing that like I'm. It's been my first full year around with like no seasons, no anything. And I'm definitely feeling some time dilation. Like I was texting pictures to my family before and it was, and they were like, Oh, everyone's in shorts and t-shirts. Like you're so lucky. And I'm like, I, I'm barely aware that it's winter. Like, <laughs> and it's a strange feel. It's like a, it, it, time moves like very differently. It feels like I haven't been here very long, you know? Yeah. You need some seasons. It's really weird. It's very strange. Um, but here we are in episode 40, and we wanted to revisit a game that I think... We, have we only played what we call Elevator Pitch one other time? Once, yeah. Yeah, okay. So basically, we, we play the famous Thinking Jeopardy music for one minute, and we play a little game where um, we have one full minute to pitch a book. And when you listen to just a minute without talking it seems like a long time but i think our experience is opposite would you say that yeah i think yeah. it was it was quick stressful and fun <laughs> yes it does go by very quickly um so you said you have five books today i have four so we should yeah. just get right to it because each one will take a minute at least with us laughing in between so um crying yeah yeah i mean i mean i guess right before we get right into the game i will also ask you you know episode 40 how does it feel 40 episodes it feels good i think uh, when we took a week off i feel well rested and ready to do mm. some more reading exactly <laughs> My brain yeah. the holidays the holidays are coming up so hopefully we get some massive amounts of reading done yeah planning on it yes okay so, do you, so. Do you want me to go first Yes, you go I first. So I will yeah. play the famous Jeopardy thinking music and you have one minute. Okay, I'm going to count down for you. In three, two, one. All right, first book I got is Free Range Chickens by Simon Rich. Um, really skinny book here. I think it's 120 pages, but I read this book. Uh, I think it's the guy, this is the guy who created the FX show Man Seeking Woman. Have you ever seen that? It's uh, just since ended, but it's a really it's a really funny show. Uh, it's Jay Barakel and uh, Eric Andre. And Ooh. I guess this book and his style, it really boils down to just throwing funny ideas at you and seeing what sticks. Like, they're not all going to work, but that's kind of what this guy does. He's kind of like really snappy humor and almost like a twitter style thing like you might find one part where it's just like two sentences or something and he kind of took that and just made a book out of it like uh i don't know references to stuff and funny situations and uh i recommend That's the show it. more but he made the show ah! <laughs> you're done you're done <laughs> i should put i should get like another separate sound that's like a giant offensive buzzer yeah um that sounds pretty cool though it's like a it, it would you consider that like potential for like a bathroom book could be yeah yeah like think, very uh, short snippets yeah he put another it they call it like a collection you know ant farm mm -hmm. was the first one i think this one's it might be just his tweets like draft folder <laughs> he just like made a book right Cool. All right. So my books this week have a for elevator pitch have a theme, um, but I don't think you're going to be able to recognize the theme until I get, you know, one or two books or two or three books in. So, OK, I'll I guess will. each time, though. OK, so here we go. Uh, three, two, one on myself. Elevator pitch. Here we go. So uh, the book that I'm holding in my hands is by Haruki Murakami, famous Japanese novelist. He is, the book that I'm holding is called Norwegian Wood. The main character is just like every Murakami main character. He is a 
thin, usually, I think he's, they're usually recently out of work, but I don't think in Norwegian wood he's recently out of work. I think the main character's name is Toru, I can see from the back here. And basically he falls in love with a young woman who uh, has to check herself into a depression clinic. And from what I remember of Norwegian wood, and that's what I'm doing for this elevator pitch, I'm only going off of what I remember. Um, from what I remember from Norwegian Wood, it's the least magical realism Murakami novel. So basically it's just straight up, like the whole time I feel like I was looking for ghosts or elements of the supernatural, but it's basically boy falls in love with girl, talks about the Beatles in Norwegian Wood, she's really sad. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> and that's the whole thing. I think he was freshly out of school. Freshly it's out of school. Gotta be freshly out of something. Yeah. yeah. Freshly in a period of transition between jobs, between schools, between something is yeah. happening with the solitary male main character. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you ready for your next one? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, three, two, one. All right, uh, it's an old one. Uh, Titus Andronicus, the play, Whoa. the Shakespeare play. Um, it is the most metal of Shakespeare's work because it's super violent, super brutal. Uh, I think it was his first tragedy. Uh, it's a lot of lot of bloodshed and war. I've seen it described as a medley of blood and horror. Uh, I think because of this, people have tried to strike it from the canon at different points. Like this is so far removed from the rest of his work that it has to be written by someone else. Like, hmm. but I think there's proof. Uh, uh, to defend that, whatever. I think, I think you could open up to any random page of this book and use it for like death metal lyrics. And I'm just gonna do that right now and open up. Uh, that woe is me to think upon thy woe. It's more than remembrance of my father's death. Oh wait, and be my heart an ever burning hell. These miseries are more <laughs> than may be borne. To weep with them that weep doth ease some deal, but so. Uh, Sorrow floated double death. It said double death. That could be an album title. Double death, definitely. That's like a good <laughs> death metal band name too. Double death. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I don't, I was not aware of the extreme death metal violence of Titus. Uh, what is it, Titus? Titus Andronicus. I think nice. there's a band named after it. But also, if you just if you just Google Titus Andronicus and go to Google Images, you'll see, like, scenes from uh some play, some stage production, and it's, it, there's. Mm -hmm bound to be like blood and shit everywhere nice cool all right yeah. next up for me we'll dive right into it because the mysterious thing about the jeopardy game is or the what do we call this game for legal reasons uh elevator, elevator pitch. pitch the mysterious thing about elevator pitches actually takes longer than you think it takes but uh here we go three two one all right, the next book that I'm holding in my hand is by famous Japanese author Haruki Murakami, and <laughs> he, uh, and it is called South of the Border, West of the Sun. Um, South of the Border, West of the Sun, the main character is a little bit older, I think, than most other Murakami main characters. He's not like a young guy, he's like an older guy. I think that there's some autobiographical stuff coming from this novel because it starts out with a guy who owns a Japanese, a small like Japanese um, jazz club, like a cafe bar slash jazz club, um, which I know from Murakami's biography that he that was once his profession before he was a novelist. And basically the story of this is like a beautiful woman from his past comes back into his life. And as a man in transition, like an older man, he starts to kind of recognize, he starts to see strange patterns in his life. And from what I remember, he like sees these snakes and like it has so much meaning and he basically has to move on from his jazz club existence. That's it. Nice. Nice. Uh, is the theme Murakami? <laughs> the theme is Murakami, but also I'm not allowing myself to like look anything up because I'm trying to think oh, like, okay. like basically like off the top of my head, what do I remember about these Murakami books? Because of the theme of how a lot of his novels are so similar, I'm wondering if it like bleeds into another. And yeah. if anybody out there in our listenership recognizes the idea that like I mix two books together because all Murakami books are the same, that doesn't Dragon. mean they're not delightful. Yeah. <laughs> but uh correct me all right you ready for your next one yeah yeah <laughs> rapid fire here we go yeah all right uh next one i got i can't remember if i covered it last time i might have um the secret garden francis hodgson burnett hmm. i 
definitely talked about it before, but it's a good story. Um, you might remember it if you are thinking off, you know, the top of your head, like a, a lighthearted sort of book or movie. But if you go to read it again, the, the beginning is extremely dark. Starts off with like a cholera epidemic and this girl becomes orphaned or, you know, everyone she knows like dies from cholera. Um, I think uh, you could probably watch the movie if you got Disney Plus, you know, trendy thing now. Um, it's got the only character I've ever seen named Dickon. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a good story. <laughs> you know, if you like gardening or uh, if you like secrets, if you like introductions by Lois Lowry, <laughs> or if you like Bantam classics, or if you like books that were okay, dude, the little that's a good little Disney Plus uh, ad you got in there. Secret yeah. Garden on Disney Plus, please endorse that's a Disney, us, Disney. Movie, right? I, I think it's got to be ah. Uh, it might have been like Warner Brothers and I fucked up. Yeah. Cross contempt. They're never going to sponsor us now. Yeah. We're never going to get that Disney money. Okay, I'm going straight into my next one. Let's see if you can recognize the theme from the last two. Okay, the novel that I'm holding in my hand is from famous Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami. It is called <laughs> After Dark. And uh, what I remember of After Dark is probably one of the most least memorable murakami is like i like i said before the theme of this is that i'm not looking up anything that i you know like i'm not trying to refresh myself i think after dark is you know the normal archetypal murakami character recently single japanese male who i think he like spends one night in tokyo so that's why it's called after dark and i'm pretty sure he gets involved with like a prostitute where or like he goes to like one of those love hotels where you can hire an escort and he kind of like feels too much for her or something like that but i really don't know all the details all i know is that i read i definitely completely read this 240 page book and i guess it's not a terribly good sign that i don't remember much from it but i remember it being murakami and being good so that's it there we go nice Ready for your next? Yeah. The theme's Murakami. <laughs> yes, the theme is Murakami and what I do it what I do and don't remember. So three, two, one. Alright, another one I can't remember if I've talked about before. Uh, Running with Scissors by Augustine Burroughs. It's uh interesting, you know, very funny coming of age story, and it's set in western Massachusetts, right in my backyard. Mm. Um you know, I currently live in that area. It's cool to read about places that I can, you know, that I see when I run errands or whatever. Um, like I said, it's very funny. I think it was also made into a movie at some point. Uh, Annette Benning, Alec Baldwin. I uh, haven't seen it, but it's probably good. Um, and yeah, about a like, kid growing up with dysfunctional family where his, his dad is like a therapist who brings random people into the house all the time it's like all over the place um you know based on this guy's life so uh as as funny as it is twisted that's the quote from gq on the back <laughs> hilarious and horrifying so wait say the say the title again running with scissors running with scissors i think i've heard of it I'm not 100 yeah. percent sure it grows up in like uh, northampton mass interesting i love reading books i felt the same way like i loved i think i mentioned before when i was talking about um that spy novelist the like classic spy novelist spy who came in from the cold who's that guy yeah lacar lacar yeah like when i was reading him in london it's just so fun like when you're reading something that's grounded in the location that you're currently in just really kind of makes it makes a makes a huge difference so cool would definitely check out the local author's rack wherever you <laughs> wherever you peruse your books. Okay, uh, this is my final book that I have for today. I'm going to dive right into it. All right, the novel that I'm holding in my hand is by Japanese, by famous Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami. It's called Kafka on the Shore. It's about a in-transition single thin male who, um, who basically... Kafka on the Shore, I think, is probably one of my... is. I usually tell people it's my favorite Murakami book, and I think it stood the test of time of reading all of his different novels. Um, Kafka on the Shore is amazing. What I remember of it is, like, there's two characters. There's a boy named Kafka, and then there's, like, an older, like, war veteran who's sort of, like, 
kind of like on his trail almost and Kafka like he basically runs away from home or like kind of like decides to change his life and he goes into the forest and like goes into this weird like cabin where he meets an older woman and I think that they have awkward Murakami sex and um there's like ghosts and talking cats and fish fall out of the sky and like it's just everything that you want from Murakami but he doesn't go too far into his own bullshit so it's really good that's it nice cool so yeah four Murakami books uh for anybody not paying exact attention that was Norwegian Wood South of the Border West of the Sun After Dark and Kafka on the Shore all really good books obviously I've read them all and uh yeah Murakami he's the man yeah, one one for every season that you don't experience. Exactly. All right, last one. Last one. Here you go, Mark. Three, two, one. All right, I got uh, wrapping it up. The Once and Future King by T. H. White. It's uh, the basis for my you know favorite one of my favorite movies growing up, The Sword in the Stone. Uh, except there's a you know when you, whenever you have a book movie thing, there's a lot of differences there uh there's more more to this book than when we're shown in the movie like you know when he uh uh transforms the kid into like animals and stuff to, for, to teach him life experiences there's some more of that in here he turns him into like an ant and like a goose there's different things going on and i would say merlin is very different in this book he's got more of like a, a dirty grandpa vibe i guess <laughs> like to make a, a you know modern comparison he like gives people rheumatism out of spite and, and shit like that like nice. <laughs> he makes more he abuses his powers a lot more uh, for like funny situations and he's like definitely like dirty old man in this one it's good i think that's nice. time boom yeah time wrapped it up nicely that sounds good i didn't know sword in the stone was i mean i guess that makes sense i've definitely heard of the once and future king yeah the king arthur story yeah definitely my fiance really likes the all King Arthur related things. So want some future King. Yeah. Um, maybe that's like a gift idea or something for the future. Okay. Uh, like I said before, the elevator pitch, I think it takes up more time than we think it does. So I'm going to dive right into my book if that's okay. Yeah. Episode 40, even number means I go first. I uh, can't believe we're already here at episode 40. Thanks everyone who's been who's been mostly listening this whole time. And I'm covering a book today that is an author who I think that we're, we both avoid, but I know that you haven't <laughs> read this book, that, but you have read this author. I think that we avoid covering Mr. Thomas Pinecone, <laughs> yeah. uh, Thomas Pynchon on the podcast, basically because we both love him so much that we have some planning going on in the background of who does what or you know whatever but i know and correct me if i'm wrong but i know that you have not read 1990s novel vineland have you not uh no okay so in have not so thomas pynchon writes vineland in 1990 and what i think is interesting about vine i mean i okay like so we've talked about Pynchon ad nauseum on the podcast before. I don't really have to go over his biography because there's not that much to go over. He's a reclusive author who's from Long Island, New York, and no one knows where he is at any given time, and no one has seen his picture since, like, 1950. Yeah, there's, like, a high school picture or something. That's so like... there you go. That That's all there really is to know. But um, And his novels, of course. But the interesting thing about Vineland, and I think, like, as I cover this book, you'll find some sort of, like, interesting comparisons between things that... I know that we've both read and have influenced sort of like the postmodernism maximalist um, kind of oeuvre of lots of different authors is um, Vineland to me is like a transition novel in the sense that like, do you remember when Inherent Vice came out and everyone was like, oh, this is like Pynchon at his like most simple? Yeah. You know, but... I feel like the spectrum of the whole like pension bibliography is sort of like deceptive, especially to people who like us, like readers that became fans of his much after what he's like best known for, like gravity's rainbow comes out and like all these like really complicated, you know, V like his first like major debut, like all these really complicated things. That's what he becomes known for. And then 
there's years and years and years and then we start reading when inherent like basically before inherent vice comes out but when inherent vice comes out and people are kind of there's like stuff all over the internet being like inherent vice is like pinching light you know like it's sort of like it's kind of as wacky but more like put together yeah. but i would argue that there's more of there's more of a spectrum to that curve than i think i initially kind of gave credit for because i thought like oh like new era pension is like he's just like sort of different now but i don't necessarily think that's true i think that he's developed over time and i think that vineland is like the perfect example of that nice i, I think it i think that sort of argument happens with a lot of different authors and it boils down to like the page length i i feel right. like that's such a big influence on it where like I don't know. Mm -hmm. it, it's like it thrusts them to the the front of the right. You know, the most prevalent, like like the crying of Lot Forty Nine is like popular because it's short, right? I and feel I think like that it wasn't as strong as the other stuff. Yeah, I think you're totally right too. That it's like page length has an effect on people's immediate association with like, oh, is this guy like a genius or not? You know, like that kind <laughs> of like stupid bullshit because. If Inherent Vice was a thousand pages, people would be like, old pensions back again. But it's just yeah. like, no, he like, you know, he just like distill it down. So Vineland is, like I said, it's like a progression in every way because Vineland, Vineland is not a thousand pages. It's only 380. So it's not exactly a clearing of Lot 49 or Inherent Vice that's like, you know, like on the thinner side or like a smaller book. But at the same time, it is a step in the direction of like, like a lot, obviously I've recommended Pynchon to a lot of people like throughout just like reading and stuff, but I think a lot of people get attracted to the idea that it's like, oh, I just have to pick up Gravity's Rainbow and read it right away because that's like his most famous thing. That's the only thing I'm going to read. And when people pick up Gravity's Rainbow, they're like, this is confusing bullshit and I have no idea. Like they're not sort of like already steeped into the like idea of postmodernism. Like like you and I, I know we read Infinite Jest before we even read Pynchon, you know. Yeah. Or maybe like people read White Noise before they read Pynchon. So then, when you take a when you start reading Gravity's Rainbow, it's like more acceptable. Whereas people who just start reading it, it's like, what is this? They're not really like in the right gear. Mm -hmm. So I would say as an introduction to Pynchon, Vineland is perfect. But let me stop talking about the arc of his career and postmodernism and just get into Vineland, the novel itself. Um, Vineland is really cool. It is... I'm basically going to read you the entire plot summary from Wikipedia. And please, everyone, don't consider this to be like spoilers for a book. Because would you agree with me, Mark, that... There's no such thing as like spoiling a pension book. It's all about the journey. Like if I told you the very end of Gravity's Rainbow, it wouldn't be a spoiler. Yeah, I don't think it matters too much. And I'm having this weird, uh, weird feeling right now where I think I might have actually read this and I might be mistaking it with Mason Dixon. Okay. Well, maybe if you have read it and you forgot it, then that also gives credit to my one-star review <laughs> later on. <laughs> that, let, let's see. Let's hear this but, plot. And I'll, yeah, I'll give you the entire plot. And also, I, wanna, I want um, listeners and you, Mark, to keep in mind that... Um, keep in mind that criticism that, we that I found for White Teeth, hysterical realism. Okay. And I yeah. also want you to keep in mind, Mark, the idea behind Infinite Chest. Okay. okay. I want. I want to take that. I want to take a, a micro stab at this. Uh, this plot really quick without remembering anything. Okay. I want to say it's about uh, this divorced guy who uh, runs into some sort of big conspiracy while like watching his daughter or something, and it's like he went. He like crashed through a plate glass window in the beginning. You've read this book. Yes, yeah. I have. <laughs> read this. Okay, so that's not a very good review for Vineland because if you've read it and then thought you didn't read it for years, then that's troublesome. But uh, I was probably stressed out in grad school or whatever. Yeah, sorry, stepping on your toes and reviewing a pension. I thought for sure you hadn't read it, but okay, so we've both read Vineland. Okay, so let me see if this jogs your memory a little bit. 
So I'm reading, I'm literally reading verbatim the entire plot section, which is like a few paragraphs from Wikipedia. So give me some time. The story is set in California in the United States in 1984, the year of Ronald Reagan's re-election. After a scene in which former hippie Zoid Wheeler dives through a window, something he is required to do yearly in order to keep receiving mental disability checks, the action of the novel opens with the resurfacing of a federal agent, Brock Bond, who through a platoon of agents forces Zoid and his 14-year-old daughter, Prairie, out of their house. They hide from Brock and from Hector Zuniga, a drug enforcement federale from Zoid's past, who Zoid suspects is in cahoots with brock and with old friends of zoids they recount they like old friends of zoids recount the, the to the mystified prairie the story of brock's motivation for what he's done so do you remember some of that yeah it's coming together yeah. now the very beginning of this book is hilarious the idea that zoid wheeler again a crazy pension name but the very beginning is really funny he basically like the whole town kind of gathers around to watch him bust through the like plate glass window of this one bar because he has to prove to the government that he's insane yeah that's like fraud insurance fraud or whatever yeah it's like a fraud thing but also the whole town like celebrates the idea that like oh yeah zoid's crazy so he can get his benefit check let's watch him jump through the window which is like yeah really, it's on it's the just news like or whatever sort of funny yeah it's like a local sort of like parade type thing um so the whole story hinges heavily on Frenesi Gates, Prairie's mother, whom she's never met. In the 1960s, during the height of the hippie era, the fictive College of the Surf seceded from the United States and became its own nation of hippies and dope smokers called the People's Republic of Rock and Roll, otherwise known as PR Cubed, so PR3. Brock Vond, a federal prosecutor, intends to bring down PR Cubed and finds a willing accomplice in Frenesi. She's a member of 24 FPS, a militant film collective, other members of which are people telling Prairie their story in the present, that seeks to document the fascist transgressions against freedom and hippie ideals. Frenesi is uncontrollably attracted to Brock and the sex that he provides and ends up working as a double agent to bring about the killing of the de facto leader of PR Cubed named Weed Atman, a mathematics professor who accidentally became the subject of a cult of personality. So see how we're getting a little bit deeper into that <laughs> hysterical realism criticism yeah. where it's basically like every character is like 20 different people and like everything is really crazy. But this also like that, that militant film collective called 24 FPS, which stands for frames per second. Um, that reminds me so much of infinite jest. No. Yeah, yeah. Like the people, there's like a, there's like these military like people in Canada. They're not really involved with film, but like there's a lot of film stuff also in Infinite Jest. So, you know, uh, Frenesi goes on to betray and flee, and she's been li living in witness protection with Brock's help up until the present day. Now she's disappeared. The membership of 24 FPS and everyone else in the novel are searching for her for various motives. Uh, the book's theme of ubiqu the ubiquity of television, or what pension calls the tube comes to a head when hector who is a tube addict who's not been working with the secret agents finds funding to create a pet project of a movie telling the story of the depraved 60s with frenesi as the director and the pomp and circumstance surrounding big money deals to create a net of safety that allows frenesi to come out of hiding so it's all like it's like they're obsessed with tv a lot of inherent like remember that part in infinite jest where they're all obsessed with mash like, there's that one guy who's obsessed with MASH. Yeah, this guy who recorded every episode and yeah. would watch so that is So that's also a prevalent theme in Vineland. Um, and in Vineland, Pynchon makes endless references to Star Trek. And there's people... There's a sitcom within Vineland called Say Jim where there's a starship and all the officers are black except the communications officer who's white. So basically, like, the opposite of star trek you know mm -hmm. and um because you know ohura or whatever was like the only uh african-american member of the crew so he like flips it on its ear makes it opposite but then there's also like a lot of stuff in this like vineland i also think weirdly may have been if i can believe that tarantino quentin tarantino is capable of reading a book he definitely read vineland because there's a lot of female ninjas and very like a lot of like kill bill type stuff in this book mm -hmm. um there's obviously the normal amount of pension like paranoia um that like jackie brown 
like yeah yeah chicks there's with guns thing yeah like. yeah yeah there's a lot of astrologers female ninjas dope smokers television addicts and stuff like that and um yeah it's all like based around this sort of family reunion of 24 fps which is like that militant film collective that um zoid brings his daughter prairie to so you're you're pretty much on the money with like it's like this guy who is divorced and like their relationship was like this epic like sort of triple crossing tete-a-tete yeah. between all these like different government agencies and stuff but it's got like it's basically got everything that would be part of like that old pension era like paranoia and like billions of characters and all this other stuff but it is like easier to read and more together like inherent vice was like i remember picking up vineland and being like here we go i'm gonna go like deep into like the world of like pension and like a lot of things are going to be hard to understand but violent is not hard to understand it's just sort of like a chill read yeah i don't think it jumped around as much as the others yeah so basically what I, my argument is like if you're introducing someone to pension and they're you know maybe have already read inherent vice or you know they want they want to go like it's a perfect transition into like a step further into hyper hysterical realism and also like just postmodern like craziness but there's just so much of this book that i feel influenced david foster wallace like in infinite jest like even when you read like you know there's musical interludes that include the theme song of the smurfs and metaphors drawn from star trek and it's like yeah like dfw definitely was obviously a pension fanboy we already knew that but vineland is like even more so um but yeah, I mean, it's a great read. It is easy to read, easier to read than most pensions. So I definitely would recommend it to a lot of people. And um, yeah, Vineland. And I think also it might be a good reread like around now because it's kind of interesting that Pension made this book like obviously like the times that we're li- like the political times that we're living in now are often compared to like Nixon and ronald reagan or whatever and obviously like pension sets this novel in 84 when ronald reagan was re-elected so obviously mm-hmm. like that has like an effect like there was like a lot of people who are like reagan haters out there but then he gets re-elected so like what does that mean and this book is about like the culture shift from hippie 1960s like summer of love society into the 80s when like businessmen like reagan are being re-elected yeah, I think I think Pynchon's really good at capturing the specific like not not like the specific feeling of the time, mm-hmm. but the specific paranoia of each era. Like right. this yeah. is 80s late mid late 80s paranoia. Yeah. So yeah, I mean Vineland, it's also just super like everything that I just described like doesn't it just sound fun? Like this guy is jumping through windows and there's like paranoia and like different like leaders of you know what it's like a spy novel with that pinch and paranoia and also a lot of wacky characters so it's just like cool it's like fun to read yeah i'm trying to remember more about it i remember there's some there might be some like shootout or something that happens in like a bathroom stall or like something something like that i don't know i might be thinking of inherent vice that there's like a weird like shootout in inherent vice (laughs) at the massage yeah i might be i might be uh yeah forging them together like Murakami, all pensions bleed together. Yeah. <laughs> Bleeding Edge. Bleeding thing. Edge, also <laughs> a very good book. Um, but yeah, that's my basic presentation of Violent. I would say, you know, check it out. Don't don't just go with the trend of pension and be like, okay, the first thing I have to read is his most famous book because I feel like for most people, that doesn't work out very well, especially because he's such a big name in his own genre of like postmodern maximalist stuff that when you start reading when you just go straight into gravity's rainbow you're not as like seasoned for it i would definitely recommend vineland first yeah what does the name mean it's just an area it's like it's like a fictional place in california okay yeah um yeah i think or maybe it's a real place in california but yeah Nothing too much to do with the with the plot of the book. 
Okay. Um, so yeah, my one star review is from Alicia on Goodreads. She has an eight point list about why this is one star review. <laughs> she says, seriously, where to begin? Point one, this book made me feel stupid. I don't like it when a book makes me feel stupid. Point two, it made me feel stupid because I didn't get it. Point three, what the F did I just read? I'm point four, half the time I had absolutely no idea what was going on. Point five, this is enough high standing literature that just speaks for it. There is enough high standing literature that speaks for itself. I don't want to have to go searching between the lines to find some hidden meaning in a book I understand nothing of. Why is it so difficult to understand? I still have no idea what the fuck I just read. I point seven, I can't even be bothered to care anymore. I'm just glad it's all over. And point eight, look how look how long it took me to read. I mean, seriously, I love reading and I'm on my summer holiday. So Alicia tears apart the book. There's also another one. Wait, how long review. did it take her to read? Did she I don't like know. tell you? She oh. didn't tell. Uh, does Goodreads tell you that? I have no idea. Maybe yeah. it does, like in her profile or something. Maybe. Um, yeah, the progress. Yeah, I think they. And have there's that. another like one star review I'm from good. Mark with a K that I, you know, it's like five pages trust long. Him. So yeah, I don't trust Mark with a K. But um, to your point, Mark, Mark Vineland's not a good book, and to be clear, it's not just good by the standards of what Pynchon is capable of. It's one of the worst books I've ever read. It's just not Ooh. memorable at all. So uh, maybe there's some point to that criticism because you barely remembered that you read a pension, which is, you know. Yeah, I think I mixed it with that era. When did Mason Dixon come out? Is that like 90s too? Uh, or like the 80s? Let me do a I think it's like, I think it's one, it borders that one at the very least, I, I think. And no, then against dude, the day. Well, it does border that one, but obviously oh. it makes no difference to us. But they were seven years apart. Vineland's okay. 1990, Mason and Dixon's 97, but we didn't re start reading Pynchon until we were like, you know, in the like mid 2000s. Yeah, I was so. reading Goosebumps instead. But it do, people do count, Wikipedia does his, they separate his earlier and later career, and Vineland would be the first of his later career. So Okay. Yes, a, t a, a touch more simple. And Vineland is actually what comes after Gravity's Rainbow, albeit it is a long span, know, 27 years after. So yeah. that's pretty, pretty long time afterwards. Okay, in which he was watching Star Trek and stuff. In which he was watching Star yeah. Trek, probably moving all over the world. Another thing that I am, like we've talked about this with Pynchon before, but he always seems to have like a lot of extracurricular knowledge that, you kind of like come to trust him. And that was a factor for Vineland and me because the whole, the idea, the like collective that's called 24 FPS that stands for frames per second. And 24 FPS is like the normal frames per second within motion pictures. Like, mm -hmm. like basically Pynchon talked a lot about behind the scenes film stuff in here where I was like, I appreciated the level of knowledge that he had that I also know from like going to school for film and everything. So from like the professional filmmaking standpoint, it's just like yet another thing where you're like impressed that he does like an amazing amount of research to like really know what he's talking about. And mm -hmm. that was like a, like a good, like you've said before, like how you found funny things in gravity's rainbow related to engineering and like electrical engineering. And it's just impressive that he knows so much. So yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. There you go. Vineland. Nice. All right. Uh, for mine this week, this is going to be another shitty book report where I talk more around the book than about it, mm -hmm. which I, I think works for this because it's a different sort of genre for me. So uh, question first, what would you say is the most difficult genre for you to read? And think, think pretty, um, not broad, but different types of writing. The most difficult, complete genre yeah. for me to read? Yeah, what genre is tough for you? For whatever reason. <clears throat> Self-help. Okay, um, why is that? Uh, just because I feel like, I feel like from the get-go that there's more like self-help to be found in like fiction or biography than there is for someone to try to like formulate an idea of how you should help yourself. Okay. What about, what about difficult as far as like, I'm reading this, but I'm, I'm having a hard time with it. Like oh, understanding um, it. How about that? Yeah. Uh, Shakespeare. Nice. Because I was, for me, I was going to say that, you know, poetry never got its hooks in me. Like 
and I don't think there was really an effort in school to get us into right. anything other than like the boilerplate, like Western canon stuff. Like, yeah, like poetry is sonnets, definitely something. You know? Yeah, like I'm 100% with you. Like, I've never read like a full book of poetry, and school doesn't like prepare you for trying to like get into, you know, like Allen Ginsberg or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's what I did this week, you know? Uh, and like, I, I mean, what we read in school was like the Shakespeare sonnets, like whatever sonnet 18, like the, the famous ones of mm-hmm. Robert Frost, uh, snowy woods <laughs> and then, uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe stuff, you know, the Raven, all, all that. Mm. So I tried to read some poetry this week and I don't, I didn't think it was going to work, but I actually did enjoy what I read which, you know, when I was thinking about it, has ties all the way back to middle school. Like, as far as, you know, the Kevin Bacon, Six Degrees, whatever, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. I could I could draw a path. And so I think it was fate that I eventually would read this book. So, you know, we're both big fans of Stephen King's Dark Tower series. You remember the yep. two things that inspired King to write that series? Two big things that inspired that series series in general like the one of them is definitely there's like a is it robert browning Browning. yes <laughs> browning yeah he wrote there's a browning poem that's like the dark tower basically yeah it's child child with an e child mm-hmm. roland to the dark tower came from 1852 right so i was hoping you wouldn't remember that because <laughs> uh, <laughs> the first one was you know he saw the good the bad and the ugly in the mm-hmm. theater you know back in 68 Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was like, you know, larger than life, you know, he talks about the gun barrel being like the size of a house and that sort mm-hmm. of shit. But yeah, the other was the, po- that poem. And so I tried reading this poem like a long time ago when I first. It's interesting going back, that. going back to your, like you, you covered Austin Cleon steal like an artist. And that's like sort of, you know, people revere Stephen King so much, but when you really go and look back at it, he's like, I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly, read a Robert Browning poem, and then wrote seven novels. Like, you yeah. can totally <laughs> see how they mix together. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, so so I read that, I read that poem uh, probably when I was like 18 or something, and I remember not being blown away. Like, it was like having cake, like having the cake of Dark Tower and then like eating a spoonful of flour like you know <laughs> like oh this was the inspiration for the cake like you know right. i found it i didn't i didn't find it as cool and obviously um didn't draw me in like the series of books did but you know anyways i remember seeing people always talk about how robert browning you know about how his wife elizabeth elizabeth barrett browning was the better poet mm-hmm. kind of the same dynamic as like mary shelley and her um her husband, uh, mm-hmm. per- Percy or something like that. See that that's proving my point. You know, she was better than him. Uh, <laughs> so this week I read the book or poem or epic poem or poetic novel or whatever you want to call it. Aurora Lay by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Cool. Aurora Lay. That's like the main character's name. And, you know, despite this being pretty challenging to me in its style, there were a lot of passages that I really liked. And it's it's it was written in blank verse, which I'm not, you know, I'm not enough familiar enough with poetry to know everything about it. But, like, blank verse is what most of English poetry is written in. Mm-hmm. I think it's in iambic pentameter, you know, like the line of verse with uh, five five metrics or mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> a sh- yeah I, uh, I don't know anything about this yeah. stuff either <laughs> uh i think it's uh one unstressed syllable and then followed by a long stressed syllable uh something like that but anyway it's classified aurora lay is classified as an epic poem but it reads it reads sort of like a novel there are plenty of parts where you forget that you're reading poetry uh, which is not to say that it's an easy read. It's definitely difficult for me. A lot of references I didn't get based on, you know, when it came out. Mm. A lot of things, you know, I might have skimmed over a little bit. But that didn't really ruin the experience for me. Um, so this is a full-on, like, it's it's a poem, but it's like 100 pages. It's like a Yeah, short, yeah, I think short. like a Paradise Lost kind of 
epic poem wow. like a long yeah. form see this is yeah. like something that i have never i like never touched that i mean yeah. as far as poetry is concerned i'll i'll read a poem if it's like a few pages or maybe a page but i've never done like the only epic poem i've read is like dante's inferno or something yeah and this um this is sort of set up like that i guess you know divided into nine parts each a different different time in the life of the main character aurora Hmm. and you know it tackles some pretty dark subjects in there and i i've seen a lot of people describe it as jane Eyre in in verse hmm. which is to say you know there's a lot of drama romantic themes in here but it's also you know a lot about the anxiety about being a woman and also a woman who's also an author in victorian society so you know it hmm. takes place in that era and it's sort of from the viewpoint of an alternate version of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, and beyond being just about a, a female author, it's really about doing anything that defied kind of the conventional gender roles of that era. There's a lot of examples of that in the book. Uh, so I want to, I want to read a few things that I highlighted in the ebook that I read. You know, I read this one on Kindle. Um, there were some cool parts in it. And what I've sort of found with the small amount of poetry that I've read is I'll really like where, you know, one sentence or two or three sentences are seem to be going. And then it kind of stops going down the same, the, the path that I liked, you know, mm -hmm. or it kind of just, it's a screeching halt kind of thing for me. Like, I'll be like, oh, um, I'll start to highlight a section. I'll be like, wow, this is like powerful. And then it kind of just like flips to something else. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess poetry has that reputation where it's something you've got to appreciate. It's like the finer things or whatever, you know, like it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, I like, rewarding. I, I see like poetry as, you know, like the thing that is like shorter, supposedly sweeter, and then you're supposed to like sit with it for a while. Yeah. You know, at, whereas like a novel, maybe you're like burning through. Yeah. I don't know. I can see that. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't, I maybe savored a few, a few parts, but I was, I really kind of, I didn't rush through it, but I read it, I read it pretty quickly, um, relatively. I think, I think that's kind of the nature of how I read things on, uh, on uh, like my phone. I read this one on like small screen and I'm just like kind of, you know, you get used to like reading things fast on your phone for whatever reason, like with Twitter or like with whatever. And I think mm -hmm. I kind of turned it into that experience where I'm just like scrolling through it like crazy. Um, so here's, uh, let me just read the opening line of the first book. And it's cool because this book is about an author. So there's a lot of passages about books, about reading themselves. So let me, let me jump into that. First, first line of writing many books, there is no end. And I, who have written much in prose and verse for others' uses, will write now for mine, will write my story for my better self, as when you paint your portrait for a friend who keeps it in a drawer and looks at it long after he has ceased to love you, just to hold together what he was and is. I, writing thus, am still what men call young. I have not so far left the coasts of life to travel inland, that I cannot hear that murmur of the outer infinite, which unweaned babies smile at in their sleep, when wondering at for smiling, not so far, but still I catch my mother at her post. Hmm. So it kind of opens up almost similar to like uh, Swan's Way, where it's like some kind of reverie, like some some childhood memory. Hmm. I thought that li like the line that jumped out to me, and I guess this is how poetry works, is like everyone like takes it differently. But did you say that there's a line in there like, She's defining her age, but also saying, like, I'm still what men call young. Yeah. It's, like, sort of interesting. Like, men could be two different things. You know, like, you could be referencing, like, the race of man, or you could be saying, like, men define... Victorian men, yeah. Yeah, like, they define a woman's age, which is, like, sort of sad. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, there's there's a lot that's... This is what I've seen as uh, called, like, a, a proto-feminist book. Uh, which I'm not sure exactly what that um, <laughs> prefix means, but there's some, you know, feminine, early, early feminist ideas in this book. 
mm-hmm. in this uh, epic novel. So uh, let me just read one more section. There's another one about books. It's from like maybe a quarter into the book. And this is just a cool, you know, kind of quote for, for people like us. I read books bad and good, some bad and good at once. Good aims not always make good books. Well-tempered spades turn up ill-smelling soils, in digging vineyards even. Books that prove God's being so definitely that man's doubt grows self-defined the other side of the line, made atheist by suggestion. Moral books, exasperating to license. Genial books, discounting from the human dignity. And merry books, which set you weeping when the sun shines. Ay, and, and melancholy books, which make you laugh that anyone should weep in this disjointed life for one wrong more. The book of the world of books is still the world, I write. Hmm. I wish she would, uh, I wish there was like an annotated version where she would give a, a which book made her feel all those different ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be cool. <laughs> I kind of, that's a good point. Like, I wish, you know, that's another thing, like with Pynchon, like, I wish he could just be like, some footnotes like i was watching this episode of star trek like <laughs> right you know what i mean that'd be that'd be cool more more behind the scenes yeah so yeah this book was um definitely a new new sort of style for me and um i think a lot of people when i when i read some reviews they were uh confused by it and i would say if you were trying to comprehend every line if i would if that that was my goal i would be Mm. confused by it too you know i don't know if this is read for some sort of maybe it's read in uh, college or something for um english class or something i think i would have i would struggle with it in that sense but just kind of reading for my own enjoyment it was it was nice and i i would i didn't feel pressured to understand every every little bit so i've got a one-star review here from erica And this is where I took that uh, proto-feminist term from. OMFG boring. Boring, boring, (laughs) boring, all caps. Some great proto-feminist ideas, but damn, woman, ever hear of the word vivacity? (laughs) Nice. That's it. (laughs) Vivacity. Yeah. When was it published? Uh, 1850. D6. Right, yeah. Don't try to don't try to understand word for word something published in 1856. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. So yeah. Uh thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. And um this is a new thing. No, it's an old thing. You can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. I haven't checked in a while, but I think we've got some emails. Give us yeah. your, send us your comments, <laughs> suggestions, anything, corrections from when we mess things up. Uh, whatever you're feeling. See you next time. See ya.